So where do you like to sing? Do you like to sing in church? I know some of you with just beautiful voices. We have, we have some amazing voices in this church. And I know you like to sing in church because I hear you. And it's awesome. But some of us are a little uncomfortable with our voice. Some of us can't hit the right tune to save our lives. Some of us don't know what rhythm is. Some of us are not musically inclined at all. And so church isn't always our favorite place to sing. So where do you, if you fall in that category like I do, where do you like to sing? Maybe it's in the car and you hear a good song come on and you just start to belt it out in the car. A lot of people like the shower and there's there's actually reasons why we love to sing in the shower. According to Mental Floss magazine, uh, the tiles in the shower uh, make your voice bounce back and forth. And since they're so closely located, instead of having this huge echo like we have in the fellowship hall back there, it's really close and it makes your voice sound more full. So like an artist who records their voice seven or eight times over to give them a nice, full, rich voice, that's how your voice is in the shower. But it also makes it have like an auto-tune effect. So you always hit, or at least sound like you're hitting the right note in the shower. So the shower is just this wonderful place to sing, right? Who, does anybody not sing in the shower? Who's like, no. You know what? I used to sing in the shower all the time, and then I started listening to podcasts while I was in the shower, and that kind of ended it's hard to sing and listen to a podcast at the same time. But all that to say, the shower is the place to sing. Singing also gives us, there's a lot of health benefits to singing. When you sing, the breathing mimics meditating, meditation, and so like it actually helps calm your nerves. So if you're feeling anxiety and you begin to sing, just the fact that you're breathing in and out in a different way helps calm you. It also releases serotonin in your body and dopamine, which makes you feel like feelings of joy. Singing can actually make you feel joy. Has anybody, as you're belting it out in the car or in the shower, have you felt like, man, I just feel so much better now? Yeah, yeah. Larry's like, oh, yes. And Larry has a, Larry has a great voice. So, you know. But, but there's all kinds of reasons why singing, it, it calms us. It makes us feel better. It's almost as if, you know, we were created to sing. And I think we were. I think we were created to sing praises to God. And that's what we're going to study today as we jump into our summer in the Psalms. So if you want to turn to Psalm 98 with me, we finished out our, our series, uh, Hopeful, which was a look through Revelation. Last week, Christian filled in and taught us how to listen to a sermon. I'm interested if anyone came prepared. We learned last week that it's okay to fall asleep. Is that what we learned? We also learned that we should come prepared and we should listen with confidence, right? And we should listen corporately. So those were ways to listen to a sermon. Thank you so much for filling in, Christian. So now we're into our Summer in the Psalms series. And we like to do this every summer where we just start working through Psalms last... Last summer, we started in book four. We didn't get to finish book four. This summer, I think we'll probably finish book four. So we're going to start off in Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of nations. 
He has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. All right, there's a lot going on here. So Psalm 98 This is uh, an unknown author. We don't know who wrote this psalm, but it it reflects Isaiah 40 through 55. So most theologians think that Isaiah 40 through 55 give us the historical background for this psalm. Isaiah 40 through 55 is all about Assyria coming to lay siege against Jerusalem. So Assyria was the nation, the, the largest nation, the empire, if you will, of that day. Their armies were huge. There's no way that this little Jerusalem could stand a chance. So if you remember the history of Israel, when they when King David had a united kingdom and then Solomon and, and it entered into the height of its power, but after Solomon, his son caused a division. And so there was the north and there was the south. Assyria had already come in, by this, by this psalm, Assyria had already come in and taken the northern kingdom captive. Had already defeated and the, taken away the people of the northern kingdom. So now you've got the southern kingdom already weakened against this great and mighty empire. And Assyria comes, and they lay siege to Jerusalem. And the question that God has to Hezekiah through Isaiah is, I'm going to give you the victory. Will you take the glory, or will you give the glory to Yahweh? That's the question. And then he does as he promises. He, God delivers Jerusalem. And the thing is, there's no way they should have won. The Assyrian army was much too big. What should have happened is that during the siege, it would have gotten so bad that they would have started starving to death. In fact, this is exactly what they did in the northern kingdom. They laid siege siege to the northern kingdom's capital city in Samaria, and they started starving to death. In fact, it got so bad that there's record of them eating their own babies. And then they fall, and Assyria wins. This is exactly what the inhabitants of Jerusalem are looking at. Put yourselves in their shoes. You know what happened in the north. You know what's coming to you now. You're living in Jerusalem. In fact, if you lived outside the city gates, you're inside now. Most people think that Hezekiah's tunnel was built because Jerusalem was now overflowing with refugees fleeing from the Assyrian army. So if you're not familiar with Hezekiah's tunnel, there was a spring on one side of a mountain, but the refugees were living on the other side, and so he digs a tunnel under the mountain that that connects the, the water so that the refugees can have water. It was a refugee crisis. 
and they're looking at this great, vast army coming to conquer them, and they know what happens in the north. They're preparing themselves. And then the siege occurs. And they've got to ask, will we trust in God? And then he gives us the victory, will we give him the glory? And then one day, the army wakes up dead. I love the way that's put. Like, Wait, what? So not everybody in the Assyrian army died. Just the majority of the soldiers died. Just enough that the king of Assyria would go back home. And what's interesting is he actually writes, we have non-biblical sources that reference this. And he writes that he defeated Jerusalem, but decided that he'd turn back home anyways without conquering them. He's like, yeah, that's a propaganda piece. So we have extra-biblical sources that, that reference what actually happens here. It was done in such a supernatural way that Yahweh's salvation of Israel would be proclaimed throughout the world. In fact, this was God's MO throughout the Old Testament. So even thinking back to the Exodus, Egypt was the most powerful nation of the world at the time. And God takes these slaves, someone, a people group that doesn't stand a chance, and he frees them. And not only does he free them, but then he totally crushes the Egyptian army. In fact, it was so famous that when the Israelites finally make it up to the promised land, all the Canaanites are scared. They're like, we know what happened in Egypt. We know what's coming. And that's how God's glory was spread. He uses Israel as an instrument to reveal who he is and to reveal his glory. And so this incident here, this event, this historical event, reveals God's glory. So the first line in this psalm, referencing this, uh, this historical event, says, O oh, sing. O oh, sing. Now this is a command. It's not just a recommendation. It's a command. You are to sing. Verses 1 through 3 in particular are going to be verses that are concerning Israel. So some might make this uh, say, well, this is just for Israel because this is a historical event addressing Israel. And I'd say, you know, that might be true, but the principle still stands. We are commanded to sing. Not just recite. Not just listen but to sing. I think there are a couple reasons why God calls us to sing. We've got them here on our slides. Number one is it creates a sense of unity. Singing creates a sense of unity. When we come together, there are so many things that want to pull us apart as a church. Sometimes it's it's doctrinal issues. Sometimes it's like really minor doctrinal issues. 
Singing helps unite us together and reminds us that we are praising and glorifying one God. I used to be a program director at a camp, and one of the first things I always loved to do was the unity clap. The unity clap goes something like this. Now, I want you to listen, because I'm going to ask you to join me in a second. All right. You think you got that? You guys ready to give it a shot? Here we go. We're going we're gonna to do this together. It's going to unify us, right? Ready? Here we go. Oh, <laughs> there was a couple people that gave that extra clap at the end. But, but uh, you know, when we'd do this together, we'd, get, we'd take like 500 students who most of them had never even met and would bring them together in this, in this big auditorium and would go through this unity clap and we'd all hit it together and it was this shared experience that would instantly unify us together as a camp. That's what singing does. When we sing corporately together at church, it begins to unify us together. When we hear one another's voices, it unifies us. So although I don't like the sound of my own voice, Other people hearing the sound of my own voice brings a sense of unity. So you may not like the sound of your own voice. I'll tell you, I like the sound of your voice. And when we're singing together, it brings us and draws us closer. So I think the first reason God calls us to sing is it forms a sense of unity. The second reason is it helps memorize truth about God. How many of you can recite lyrics to songs you've never even owned? I mean, I'll confess, I don't really like country music. I know some people love country music. You're entitled to that. I won't judge you for liking country music. I'm not a big fan. I've never owned a country music CD. But a country music song comes on, and I can can sing right along with it. In fact, I don't even need the song to come on. I can just be like a little bit of country fried. You guys already have the, the lyrics going in your head, don't you? Like you could probably finish that, right? There's something about music that, that drills those lyrics into our heads. So when we sing truth about God, it helps us and it reminds us of who God is and who we are. One of the songs that I just absolutely love to sing over and over again is Come Thou Fount. Because it's got truth in it that firmly roots me in who God is and the grace that He has given to me. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Man, if that doesn't describe me, I don't know what does. And yet... He still loves me. He still provides His grace for me. Singing helps us remember truth about God, about what He has done for us. It's very similar to actually communion, I think. Reminding us of what He's done and what He will do. Singing together helps us with that. I can't tell you, Jen has so many songs that she just references all the time. When she's feeling down. When she's feeling like she doesn't measure up. Like she's not enough. 
when she feels like God has given up on her, she'll come back to truth that we sing together. Now this leads into another point of it's important to measure the lyrics that we sing. Because there are a lot of great songs that we sing, a lot of songs with great truth that we sing that remind us of truth, but there are also some terrible songs with terrible theology. Lyrics matter. The lyrics of music matter. We don't want to go around singing songs that don't have truth in them. We don't want to be reminding ourselves of something that's not true. So lyrics matter. And it is those lyrics that I think provide an emotional impact. And what I mean by that is when I'm singing lyrics that have truth to them, that should be stirring my emotion. There's a trend right now within churches, and I get the trend, but the trend is to play songs really loud. And it's called, these are called seeker-friendly churches. I have friends that are pastors of seeker-friendly churches. I'm not here to judge a seeker-friendly church, but I do think that this theology is slightly off. And so what I mean by that is that what they do is they, they create their Sunday morning service to make uh, seekers feel more welcome. We should be a welcoming church. We should welcome seekers. But they want to make it really seeker-friendly, and part of how they do that is by playing really loud music. This is going to get into my next point, but I want to take this point for a second because I want to make sure we're clear on this. They look for loud music with the right chords to stir some kind of emotional response. Last week when Christian was talking, he talked about something called functional mysticism. This is an example of functional mysticism. When we start to tailor our experience so that we can get an emotional response, that's mysticism. That's saying that I go to church because it makes me feel good. Now don't get me wrong, I think church should make us feel good but not because we're just having an emotional response. So some people write music, and they, they organize the chords just right to produce emotional response. This happens all the time. Have you ever watched a movie without any music at all? It's awkward, isn't it? Boy, it's awkward. Music can make us feel scared. Music can make us feel joy. Music can produce in us emotion. And if we're coming to the sanctuary just to feel some type of emotion, so we want to hear the right chord so that it can stir up some emotion so I feel good about my relationship with God, then we're slipping into functional mysticism. And we're doing it backwards. It's not that I feel emotion so I seek out truth. It's that I seek out God's truth, and oftentimes that's what produces emotion in me. So Come Thou Fount is one of them. Another one of my all-time favorite songs is All I Have is Christ. Some of the lyrics are, As I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cross. Man, once again, if that doesn't explain me, I don't know what does. There's been so many times in my life where I have ran away from God 
shaking my fist at him and said, forget you, God, I want to do my own thing. I want to do my own way. I want to be God of my own life. And if you had not loved me, I would refuse you still. Man, God loves me. And it is because of his great love for me that I'm no longer in rebellion against him. It's nothing that I have done. It is all God. And in me, when I sing that song with our congregation, I oftentimes well up with emotion. Sometimes I even have to hold back tears. Because it's an emotional response to a theological truth. So I want to make it clear, because sometimes when we talk about functional mysticism, and we talk about experience and emotion, we make it sound like like we don't want any emotion. And that's not true. Emotion is a gift from God. We should definitely express emotion. In fact, I think later on in this psalm, he's going to have a call for emotion. But too often we make emotion the idol, emotion the goal. I want to come in and I want to worship and I want to get worked up with emotion. Instead of saying, I want to come in and I'm going to praise God because he's commanded me to. So I'm going to sing to God because he's given me that command. And as I sing these lyrics that are profoundly true about who I am and who God is, that will end up stirring emotion in me. There's a big difference there. So we sing because it forms a sense of unity. We sing because it helps us memorize truth about God, and then we also sing as a witness. We also sing as a witness. Singing as a congregation is not normal. That's one of the reasons why there's seeker-friendly churches. Because it does feel a little bit awkward to come in and sing together, doesn't it? It does feel a little bit awkward to come in and have other people hear my voice. And there is an emotion tied to that. So when I come in and I begin to sing and you can hear my emotion, it's vulnerable for me. All of a sudden it feels like you're seeing a part of me that I don't show a lot of other people. So it's different. It's a little bit weird. You know, there are secular concerts all the time. And what do they do at secular concerts? Almost everybody sings along, because if you're going to a concert, it's most likely music that you love, right? So you go to that concert, you've listened to these songs over and over again, you have them memorized, and what do you do? You sing along. But the music is so loud, you can't even hear yourself sing, let alone someone else sing. But when we're in a congregation together, and we can hear each other sing, it's different, it's weird. And it's compelling. And in particular, it's compelling when we sing with emotion. It's compelling when we sing as though we believe the lyrics. When a church comes together and they sing, it is a witness that we truly believe what we're singing about. We truly believe that we are sinners saved by God's grace. 
So I think those are at least three re reasons. This list is not exhaustive. You can see on the slide here, I've got what other reasons can you think of? I think that'd be a great question to, to talk about as you go home. What are some other reasons why God commands us to sing? So we get this command, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. So old songs remind us of what He has done. This is not, this is not saying that old songs are bad. If that was the case, then we wouldn't sing any psalms, right? He's not arguing against old psalms. Songs. What he's doing is saying that old songs help us remember what God has done, but God hasn't stopped working. God is in humanity. He has entered history. He is working among us, and he is still doing new things. So we sing new songs that, that proclaim the new things that he's doing. This is, once again, is part of that witness. When we sing, if we only ever sung about what happened in Assyria, or we only sang songs that spoke about what happened with the Exodus, some people might grow a little bit old and tired of it and say, well, that was God then. What has he done for me lately? But when we sing about the heart that he has changed... People get to see that God isn't done working in humanity yet. That God is still doing new things. So he's encouraging us to sing a new song because God is doing something new. Notice that this is in a reference, that this is a reference towards Isaiah 40 through 55. He, it very easily could have been a reference to the Exodus because a lot of it is similar. But he's singing a new song because God has done something new. God is doing something new in our lives all the time. Sing a new song about it. For he has done marvelous things. This term marvelous things it speaks to a supernatural act. So God had done a marvelous thing in Isaiah 40 through 55. He had saved Jerusalem from Assyria in a supernatural way. His right hand and his holy arm. Uh, his right hand and his holy arm, typically your right arm is stronger, so it's a reference towards strength. And his holy arm shows us that it's not just a strong arm, but it's also a supernatural arm. It's other than any, like anything we've ever experienced. So when I read about this, I think about actually when I was a kid, my dad was a diesel mechanic, and he worked with big engines, and his fingers were big, and his forearms were big, and his biceps were big. And I remember being a little guy and curling up in my dad's arms and feeling so safe and secure because my dad was strong. Now, I know that some people haven't been able to experience that. Because our world is broken, because we live in a fallen world, some people don't get to experience a a father that represents God well. But that doesn't mean that you should reject the safety and security that God can offer you. God's arm is big and it is strong and He offers you security. That feeling of safety, of curling up, in his arms. So his right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Salvation is rescue.
from harm. And in this case, once again, this is a specific reference to what God had done for Jerusalem, rescuing them from the harm that Assyria wanted to make against them. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed righteousness in the sight of nations. So once again, he is talking about how God did this in such a supernatural way that he would declare his glory throughout all the world. So he's calling out Israel to sing about this song because God had done something amazing. But it's not just Israel that gets to see this amazing act that God committed. It's the whole world. The whole world will get to hear of this supernatural way that God had saved Jerusalem from Assyria. He has remembered his steadfast love and and faithfulness to the house of Israel. And this is just a reference to the covenant that God had made with Israel. All of Deuteronomy is one big covenant. If you like to read the law, if you like to read legal terms, read Deuteronomy. Because it is a legal covenant that God cuts with Israel saying, if you remain faithful to me, I will protect you. If you turn from me and worship other gods, I'm going to raise up a nation that will discipline you. That we see that happen throughout the Old Testament, and in particular, when after God uses or God saves them from Assyria, then he actually raises up Babylon and uses Babylon to discipline Israel because they turn and become incredibly wicked. All of the, all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of God. So his work with Israel was to reveal himself to all people everywhere. And that's what he does when superpower nations come, ag- come against this small little nation, and yet the small nation wins time and again, revealing who God is and what his power is like. Verses 4 through 6 go from, a, so we've got 1 through 3 are a call for Israel to sing. Verses 5 through 6 are a call for all people. So make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. This is a reference, who should make a joyful noise? All people. And recognize what kind of noise it is that should, should be made. It shouldn't be a, a well of a terror. It shouldn't be uh, sarcastic. It should be a joyful noise. All the earth, all people. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Once again, what type of song? It's a joyous song. Recognizing salvation from God should produce joy in our hearts. This term, break forth, means to start abruptly and with a degree of intensity and energy. To start abruptly with a degree of intensity and energy. When I read that definition, I think all the way back into the 80s, because I grew up in Denver, And if you remember, the Denver Broncos weren't always a great team. And there were a couple years that they went to the AFC playoffs and they played against the Cleveland Browns. And there was one game in particular, the first game that they they played against the Cleveland Browns. It's actually famous in NFL history. It's called The Drive. John Elway was the quarterback, if you remember John Elway, years ago. They were down by less than a touchdown, two minutes to go, less than two minutes to go. They get the ball behind their 20-yard line. They've got to go all the way down and score a touchdown. 
and John Elway steps on the field. And I remember being a little boy and watching this. And he takes command of that field. And he, may, he completes this pass. He completes that pass. And pretty soon he marches them all the way down the field and boom, touchdown. And my brother and I jump up screaming. We run into the driveway, running up and down. We're going to the Super Bowl! We're going to the Super Bowl! We were so excited. There was a break forth into joyous noise right then. Then we lost the Super Bowl. I think it was a record loss, by the way. I can't remember, but I remember it was disappointing. So, but anyways, that's what I think of, though, is this intensity. You know, we break forth with this joy. That's what God has called us to when we worship him. And this also speaks back to being a witness, a testimony for God. When we show up here and we sing in boredom, that is not a good testimony to God. When we show up here and we say, Come thou fount of every... That's boring. Are you really joyous? Do you really believe what you're singing? When you sing, All I have is Christ, and you're like, All I have is Christ... It's really vulnerable to sing all alone up here, by the way, all right? <laughs> Anne and Ellie, I don't know how you guys do it. You're special. Uh, so anyways, that's not doing it, right? That's just not going to produce. First of all, it's not the joyous noise, but it's not believable. Do you really believe what you're singing when you're singing with boredom? We're supposed to sing with excitement, to break forth, to remember that, hey, you know what? Greater than any Super Bowl ever is the fact that you were living in rebellion against God. You shook, at some point, every single one of us has shaken our fist at God and said, forget you, God, I want to do things my way. And because every single one of us has done that, every single one of us deserves death. We deserve to be eternally separated from God. In fact, because God is so holy, that act of rebellion can't be around him. When God returns, we studied this in Revelation, when God returns, the heavens and the earth will dissolve in front of him because he's so holy. We deserve that same fate, to be eternally separated. But because he loves us with such a great love, he came to this earth and he lived a perfect life and he died on the cross to pay the price for your rebellion and my rebellion so that we can live in eternity with him. And all you have to do to accept that eternal promise is to put your faith and trust in his work on the cross. And when you do that, he no longer holds your sin against you, but he calls you holy and just and righteous. And if that's not a reason to break forth in song, I don't know what is. That should spark this joyous noise in us. Whenever you feel bored with praise, think about what God has done for you. And maybe that can reignite this. So we're commanded again, sing praises to the Lord with a lyre, with a lyre and with the sound of melody. The lyre is just a stringed instrument, and the sound of melody is combining instruments and vocals to make music. And I think here, God is embracing new and diverse instruments. God is a creative God. I think He likes it when we are creative. We were created in His image, and because He is creative, we can be creative. So God is endorsing here new 
and diverse instruments. But here's the thing. The key is focus on God. It's sing praises to the Lord with these new and diverse instruments. It's not just make a bunch of melody to make you feel good, to stir up emotion, to step into that functional mysticism. The focal point, whether you're playing with a piano, an organ, or whatever instrument it is, the focal point needs to be God. If the focal point ever leaves from God to the instrumentation, we're doing it wrong. So sing praises to the Lord with diverse instruments. With trumpets and the sound of the horn. The trumpet was a silver horn and it was used to command troops. The horn was actually an animal horn and it was used to uh, get attention. When you use the two together, it was to announce the coming of a king. So when you'd use the trumpet and the horn together, that was announcing the king. And so we're to combine these and make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord. When we sing, this is another part of our witness. When we sing with joy in our hearts, we are announcing to the world who God is. It's a part of how we witness to the world who God is. Let the sea roar. So we move from a call to Israel to a call to all people, and then 7 through 9 is going to be a call for all of creation. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together. This, these two lines, 7 and 8, inspired the hymn of joy. You know, joyful, joyful, we adore him. That's the song. This inspired that. It was the author, uh, Henry Van Dyke, said this was a hymn of trust, hope, and joy. Looking, through the, looking at the world through a lens, a biblical lens, should be producing trust, hope, and joy for us. Looking at the world through a non-biblical lens is what produces despair and anger. Christians, we should be the most joyful people. Not that we are blind to what's going on. We can see the chaos of the world around us but we can still have hope and joy and trust in God because we know that He is the maker of all things and that in the end, He will make all things new. A biblical worldview should produce hope and joy and trust. Verse 9 gives us the reason why the entire creation will sing to God. Before the Lord... For he comes. Now, I think this is important because he's not just going to judge from the throne room in heaven. He's not, he is not some God that lives somewhere else. He's not some God that just died on the cross for our sins and left us to our own faculties. But he comes. He comes and he interacts with humanity. And in this particular instance, he comes to judge the earth. God judges the earth because He loves the earth. 
And he loves his creation. He loves the people in the earth. I always go back to, if someone broke into your home and tortured your family in front of your face, and you said, ah, no big deal, I'm going to go watch TV. Would you actually love your family? The fact that you were angry and demanded justice would be directly correlated with the fact that you love your family. God loves his creation. And he has watched over thousands of years where humanity has absolutely abused and tormented one another. And you better believe he is coming to judge. And he will be a righteous and just judge. And that's what the next line gives us. He will judge the world with righteousness. And righteousness means he's going to be morally correct. One of our problems with the judicial system, with the justice system, not just in America, but throughout all of humanity, is we get things wrong. No matter how good your judicial, judicial system is, it's going to get things wrong. And we have seen our judicial system get things wrong. And so we stop believing in a righteous judge. But when God comes, He will judge righteously. Every judgment He makes will be morally correct. So He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. The Hebrew term for equity here is masarim. And it was actually, originally it meant like a linear direction, and it meant smooth and level. And now you could see how when you start to apply that to the justice system, it means that all people will be judged equally. God's not going to take into account your wealth. God's not going to take into account how much power you have, how much charisma you have. You can't buy your way out of this judgment. He will judge all people to the same standard. Every single one of us will be judged by the same standard. And not a single one of us measures up. Because we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. So the only way to avoid Eternal judgment, eternal separation from God is by putting your faith and trust in Christ. So why do you sing? Is it to get an emotional response? Do you sing because you love the emotion? Do you sing because it helps calm you? Do you sing because it gives you this sense of joy? Do you sing because you've been commanded to sing. Do you sing because you were destined to be judged by a holy God and yet because of his great love for you, he died and took your punishment and now he calls you holy and just and righteous. Dear Lord, we love and we praise your name. We thank you 
that although we deserve eternal death, You paid that price so that we could live for eternity with You. And we pray as we get ready to sing one last song of praise for this Sunday that You would help us to think about the lyrics, to think about what You've done, and to break forth in joyous song. In your name we pray. Amen.